Welcome to the markets. Dateline, Friday, October 11, Scottsdale, Arizona. Along with Max Armstrong, I'm Orion Samuelson for our weekly look at markets from Wall Street to feedlots to the wheat fields. And like every other week, it has been a very busy week with lots of questions that traders were waiting to get answered. And I think maybe we got some answers today. But as we take a look at how we ended the trading day and the trading week, stocks ended more than 1% higher today. But that was well off the day's highs after the announcement of a partial trade deal between the United States and China. Indices cut their gains late in the session as the deal was announced with worries over the possibility of further flare-ups before the agreement is finalized. President Trump, speaking to reporters after talks with Chinese Vice Premier Liu He, said the U.S. and China had come to a substantial Phase 1 trade deal, reaching agreement on intellectual property, financial services, and big agricultural purposes. The Preliminary partial deal was the biggest step toward resolving a 15-month tariff war between the world's two largest economies, and the market had risen in recent days due to optimism for an agreement, and the S&P 500 was up as much as about 1.9% earlier in the session today. But one analyst, Michael O'Rourke at Jones Trading in Greenwich, Connecticut, said, The main reason for the market rally today and the past couple of days was hope that there would be an agreement, even a small agreement, and that this trade war would be done for the foreseeable future. He went on to say, it looks like while there is an agreement, this is still going to drag out and be an issue. Top-level discussions between the two countries concluded their second day today. So at the end of the day, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, 319 points higher, ending the week at 26,816. The S&P 500 gained 32 points for the day to end at 2970. And the NASDAQ composite added 106 points to end the day and the week at 8,057. Indices also gained for the week, with the Dow and the NASDAQ up nine-tenths percent each, and the S&P 500 up six-tenths of a percent. The timing of the trade news had a lot to do with the late-day volatility. One trader said there were 15 minutes to go in the trading day on a Friday after the Dow had risen 700 points in the last two days. Anything that was less than a comprehensive agreement was likely to see some degree of market sell-off. Analysts expect S&P 500 earnings to have declined 3.2% year-on-year in the third quarter. That would mark the first decline since 2016. Bets for another interest rate cut by the Federal Reserve fell after data showed a rise in consumer sentiment for the month of October. Apple stock up 2.7% as Wedbush raised its price targets, citing confidence in the company's new video streaming service. 
And the S&P 500 Industrial Index was boosted by a 17% jump in shares of Fastenal Company after the industrial distributor beat quarterly profit expectations. So for the day, the S&P 500 posted 27 new 52-week highs, no new lows. The Nasdaq Composite recorded 44 new highs and 60 new lows. And uh, the market uh, still ended the day fairly strong, but certainly well off the highs that we saw in the early trade. Taking a look at uh, the oil market, that has been filled with activity this week because of the ongoing uh, shutdown of some of the shipping lanes. Oil prices rose more than 2% today after Iranian media said a state-owned oil tanker was attacked in the Red Sea near Saudi Arabia. And Brent crude futures gained a dollar forty one cents a barrel, that's two and a half percent, settling at sixty dollars fifty one cents a barrel. US crude futures up a dollar fifteen cents to settle at fifty four dollars seventy cents a barrel. The gains in oil were tempered by the International Energy Agency's forecast for weakened demand in the year twenty twenty. But still, Brent and U.S. crude hit their first weekly increases in three weeks. So now let's look ahead. Um, It's going to be an eventful week next week. Major U.S. banks will kick off the earnings season next week and are expected to report their first quarterly earnings per share declines in three years. Thanks to falling interest rates, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company, Goldman Sachs Group, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo scheduled to post their third quarter results on Tuesday. Bank of America will report results on Wednesday and Morgan Stanley on Thursday. On Tuesday, results are also expected from Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, the world's largest custodian bank. On the economic front next week, the Commerce Department report on Wednesday likely to show U.S. retail sales rose three-tenths of a percent in September after a four-tenths percent gain in August. Another report that day is likely to show business inventories rose two-tenths of a percent in August. Thursday's report likely to show U.S. manufacturing output fell two-tenths of a percent in September after increasing solidly the previous month. Also on Thursday, Commerce Department is likely to report housing starts for September, and they're expected to show a decrease in the annual rate of 1,320,000 units. That would be down from 1,364,000 units in the month before. Back to earnings reports. Johnson & Johnson expected to post a decline in third quarter profit on Tuesday due to increasing competition for its drugs such as rheumatoid arthritis therapy Remicade and investors will also look out for updates on the adoption of its new depression treatment and the status of various lawsuits for products including its talcum-based related offerings and opioids. BlackRock 
is slated to report its third quarter results on Tuesday. The world's largest asset manager expected to report a drop in quarterly profit amidst a slowing economy and stock markets. Wednesday, Netflix reports third quarter results. The streaming giant is expected to bounce back from a rare subscriber loss that it faced in the U.S. last quarter. Upcoming streaming services from Walt Disney and Apple have added to worries about slowing subscriber growth and rising costs for Netflix. United Health Group set to report third quarter earnings on Tuesday and investors will watch for signs of growth across various businesses as political uncertainty continues to weigh on stocks of health insurers. And a long list, almost a full page of Fed speaker schedules next week. The um, regional Fed governors are going to be all over the country and a couple of them all over the world uh, making presentations at various economic gatherings. Friday, credit card issuer American Express expected to report higher third quarter profit boosted by an increase in consumer spending and higher wages. But Amex has warned of higher costs this year as it spends on rewards programs to attract customers in an increasingly crowded and competitive markets. International Business Machines Corporation, IBM, expected to report a decline in third quarter revenue on Wednesday, hurt by subdued demand for its traditional mainframe businesses, and investors will focus on IBM's efforts on the cloud computing front as the company looks to improve margins. On Friday, beverage maker Coca-Cola expected to post an increase in third quarter revenue on higher demand for its zero-calorie drink Coke Zero Sugar and flavored sparkling waters. And investors will watch out for updates on the company's new energy drink launch in the United States and other new product launches next year. On Friday, Honeywell International expected to report lower revenue for the third quarter. Medical device maker Abbott Laboratories is expected to post an increase in third quarter profit on Wednesday, helped by its blood sugar monitors and heart devices. And Union Pacific Corporation will report third quarter results on Thursday. Investors will be looking for a rebound in the railroad's important intermodal business, as well as commentary about progress on the Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade agreement. Because uh, Kansas City Southern, which gets one-third of its revenue from Mexico, is expected to report third quarter results on Friday. And East Coast Railroad Operator CSX Corporation reports third quarter earnings also on Wednesday. And finally, one more transportation story on Friday. Cessna business jet maker Textron expected to report higher profit and revenue for the third quarter as it benefits from a steady demand for its corporate aircraft in the United States. That's its biggest market. <clears throat> Analysts are concerned that U.S. bizjet activity is likely to slow down amid a challenging economic backdrop 
backdrop that could hurt Textron orders in the coming quarters. And just a reminder, the U.S. bond market is closed for Columbus Day on Monday, and Canada markets are closed for Thanksgiving Day in our neighbors to the north. Well, that's a quick stroll through the Wall Street business side of it, and uh, we're going to take a look at the ag biz side of it now when we continue on the markets. Your best defense against breast cancer is a mammogram. I'm Dr. Sandy Goldberg, a breast cancer survivor and founder of a Silver Lining Foundation. And early detection saved my life. Are you uninsured? Are you underinsured? Are you a survivor and need follow-up testing? Feel like you have nowhere to turn? Times are tough, but getting a mammogram shouldn't be. Call us at 312-345-1322. A Silver Lining Foundation is here to help. Sitting down to the studio with us this week after the release of the October crop report was longtime economist and commodity analyst Dale Durkles. He's on Twitter, grain underscore cycles is how you find him there. But I talked with him first about this harvest season. After a challenging, challenging planting season, a challenging, challenging growing season, now a downright nasty harvest for many producers. And this week we got some numbers from Uncle Sam. Yeah, and they're going to be numbers that some people are going to sit there and go, how can that be? You know, the corn yield number we got out on the report this week, up two-tenths of a bushel, 1684 Put the production number just up at uh, under $13.8 billion. The bean number, they're probably going to say, yeah, it's probably a more appropriate 46.9 bushel on the yield, taking that down roughly about a bushel from where we were a month ago and taking the production down to 35.50. But there are going to be an awful lot of people going to look at that corn number and go, how can that be? This will just add to the disappointment, the concern, the anger that some farmers have experienced watching USDA reports this year. You know, yeah, it will. But I think the one thing we've got to understand in here with the reports today, you know, our harvest number here of recent was like 13, 14%, both for corn and beans. I don't remember which was which. In USDA's process, there's two parts to that production report we get every month. What they collect in the field, the data they get there, then also the input they get from farmers. And farmers' numbers are going to be based on their experience. So with very little of the crop harvested, Farmers don't have much experience, and I go back and relate to things that happened in 2009 still as somewhat of a guideline. Looking at the harvest progress, when you looked at those numbers and compared them with average, when the report came out this past Monday, it wasn't that far off average. Now, as we progress over the next couple of weeks, that gap is going to widen significantly, isn't it? Oh, it it will, although, you know, it's amazing, you know, the corn crop coming in, you know, the kind of numbers that you hear even on moisture, you know, surprisingly uh, not all that high at this particular point. But one of the things you step back and you look at with corn instead of looking at the harvest number, because we are just beginning, it's looking at where the USDA numbers are as percent of the crop that is rated as mature. 
we're down at the lowest levels we've had in history. So, I mean, harvest from this point forward is going to be slow to ramp up, as you say, although soybean harvest, I think, is going to be a little quicker. What else jumped out of the numbers USDA released this week? Well, when you look at it, you know, and you you think about the numbers we had there, you go into the supply demands naturally because production numbers were a bit of a surprise to people coming in higher than they expected on corn. Um, they actually raised the feed consumption number, both old crop and new crop. Basically, that ties back into, and that's feed and residual, I should say. That ties back into the stocks number we had here about 10 days ago now that really came in surprisingly low. So it says, you know, either feed demand was better than expected last year. I think part of it was last year's crop maybe still a little bit overestimated. But that feed consumption possibly looking better. I think was behind, you know, the increase in the feed demand number we had here. The bean number, we took the the ending stocks there down under 500 million, but they really didn't tinker too much with uh, the demand numbers in there. So it was all really in the supply. But, you know, overall, you look at it, you know, beans, yeah, they're friendly numbers. Corn, it's uh, a little negative, and that was reflected in the early action. Weren't many people expecting, though, that corn feeding should be higher than what the USDA has been saying, just given the kind of production bump-up that we've seen in the nation's hog herd, this expansion where the pork producers got a little bit ahead of themselves on the global demand into China? Well, even if you look beyond the hogs, which are correct there, I mean, the hog numbers, and we just had a report out here also 10 days ago, you know, that said, you know, the hog numbers, depending on category, let's say 2 to 3% up. You know, cattle on feed numbers, still relatively heavy at this point. Broiler numbers, the placements there, still running a little bit ahead of a year ago. So when you look at those grain-consuming animal units, we've got plenty of mouths to feed out there. There's no doubt about it. And so, you know, the feed numbers themselves, you know, I think that's pretty appropriate. Some people in the early take when they looked at that corn stocks number, for example, went, wow, last year's crop must have been still overestimated by quite a bit. And I said, back up a little bit here. Part of that's probably over in the feed at this point, and you just can't can't really define how much. What else uh, is on your mind right now in terms of crop size and crop demand? You know, I, I think the big thing people got to gotta look at and they got to think about is, uh, and I mentioned it earlier, going back to the 2009 experience, you know, from August to September, October, you know, or not 2009, 1993, from August to September to uh, October, you know, those corn yield numbers in 93 came down a little bit. But the big drop down came in November and also in the final. And in other words, you know, we've got a real slow harvest at this point like we had then. And we really don't know what's out there when we go into the field. Uh, when you look, go back, and the only thing I can relate to the pro-farmer numbers, uh, the ear size actually that they counted back at the end of August was about, two and a half percent smaller than last year. Now that's just circumference and length, you know, didn't have anything to do with kernel size. Counterbalancing that though, the time from pollination to maturity on corn actually is a little little bit longer than last year and also up near the highest levels we've had of recent years. Beans, on the other hand, are time from bloom to dropping leaves is a lot smaller. So I think there's probably still some more room for downside as far as looking at the bean yield is concerned at this point. It will be interesting when I get time to start looking in the murky details of USDA reports because they give us the year counts, they give us the, the pod counts, and we can start to look at 
what we can see in those numbers ahead and also thinking about the implied ear weights, pod weights. Is an acreage shock yet to come or are we still you know, comfortable with numbers that have been uh, circulating there? Well, we made some minor adjustments in beans, really didn't so much in corn. And, you know, we're far enough along with uh, the FSA accumulation of data. I think NAS is pretty comfortable with their acreage numbers, although we may get a small adjustment come January. But I think the acreage numbers, they're pretty well set. I have to ask you about field losses. I mean, if you look at the the social media stuff that's been circulating here this week, while there were some great harvest activities going on, uh, you know, right across the east central Illinois, even there, I, I saw some downed corn video, but that that stuff out of western Canada in the canola fields and uh, some areas of Minnesota and the Dakotas, that's just downright ugly, the effort to get that out of there. How much ultimately at the end of the day is going to be left out there in the field. Yeah. Will, will it be meaningful for once? Yeah, and up there in the northern plains and in the Canadian prairies, they've got an added problem to deal with. It's called a lot of snow. There were some places in northern North Dakota they were talking about up to three foot of snow. Crops you don't know, look good in snow. No. You know, uh, we are going to end up with more field losses. You know, stock quality isn't all that great at this point in time. You know, and the longer we delay it and the weather you know, if it's not real cooperative, create some problems. So they'll jump up a little bit. What a lot of people don't understand, USDA ultimately measures that. Uh, once a field that their enumerators keep going back to during the summer and during the fall to collect data from, once that field gets harvested, they go out and throw down a grid and they count every kernel of corn, beans, whatever in that grid that they come down with. And they actually measure field loss at that point, and that gets incorporated when we get into these last two reports, the final one in particular. But you are right about the weather and the lateness of harvest, you know, field loss and the quality of some of the stalks and corn, for example. It's going to be an issue this year, I think. It's going to bump up. How much, we don't know because we don't have any good data to guide us on that. Quickly, just a comment about South America. I, I saw some comment the other day that in Argentina, it's not just a, a matter of watching planting season weather, but politics may come in and skew the plantings a little bit this year. Yeah, it's really kind of changed. You know, everybody's really trying to figure out, you know, where to go forward down there as far as producers with the political situation. And there is an election coming up here pretty soon, too. So, you know, they're all trying to second guess how things are going to react. They're also looking at, you know, the amount of money that, that the government retains out of and the amount of taxes that, that are retained. You know, so I, I think we're going to see the Argentine farmer that through the last two or three years had started to expand and move back into corn. Mm-hmm. I think he's probably going to go back into his tried and true and try to manage the beans, especially if we do get a change in political leadership down there. But, it's, you know, I look at Argentina. It's this one country. You know, I think back 40, 50, 60 years, 60 years ago, how good they were and how well they could produce stuff. And today, the challenges they still have them politically to try to figure out how to fit into the world. You ask the farmers down there when you visit with them, and they'll tell you, oh, if we just, if we could just get it all together politically. And there is a lot of potential there by all means. <laughs> you know, and that says on the bright side of that, let's look just north into Brazil. We seem to be seeing a, a political change there that, that does people are somewhat excited about down there. And they're somewhat more comfortable with things are getting done. They hadn't been getting done before. So that's going to be one to keep an eye on, too. Yeah, but I want to come back to your word choice. You said the bright side. Well, you mean if you're a Brazilian producer? Yeah. 
<laughs> Let's remember we have that concern, of course, in the Northern Hemisphere. Good to see you. Uh, it's always, always good sir. to be here. Dale Durkos, Grain Cycles. Our final look at the business world will focus a little bit more on the trade deal between the United States and China that happened today, the first phase of a deal to end a trade war. And that prompted President Trump to suspend a threatened tariff hike. But officials said the agreement had to be put on paper and more work was required to get it finalized. The partial accord covering agriculture, currency, and some aspects of intellectual property protections represented the biggest step toward a resolution of a 15-month tariff war between the world's two largest economies. However, the announcement did not include many details, and the president said it could take up to five weeks to get the deal written. U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said we will not sign an agreement unless we get and can tell the president that this is on paper. With Chinese Vice Premier Liu He sitting across a desk from President Trump in the Oval Office, the president told reporters that the two sides were very close to ending their trade dispute. He said there was a lot of friction between the United States and China and Canada and China. Now it's a love fest, and that's a good thing. Mnuchin said that Trump had agreed not to proceed with a hike in tariffs to 30%. That would be up from 25% on about $250 billion in Chinese goods that was supposed to have gone into effect on Tuesday. But Lighthizer said the president had not made a decision about tariffs that were subject to go into effect in December. When asked about those tariffs, the president said, I think that we're going to have a deal that's a great deal that's going to take us beyond tariffs. And uh, President Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping are both scheduled to attend a November 16 summit of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Countries in Santiago, Chile. Both sides have imposed duties on hundreds of billions of dollars of goods during their dispute, but there have been some positive signs in recent days. So maybe we can finally talk about things other than the China-U.S. trade war, like the still-to-be-signed Canada-U.S.-Mexico trade situation. And apparently that has run into a brick wall. The story this week on Wednesday, the head of the AFL-CIO labor union warned against speedy passage of the administration's new trade pact with Mexico and Canada, saying he was especially concerned about labor protection measures in Mexico and that any vote on the plan before the end of November would lead to its defeat. Richard Trumka, he is the AFL-CIO labor leader, said if there was a vote on the new NAFTA before Thanksgiving, the agreement would be defeated. Fast action would be a colossal mistake. His concerns include reservations that Mexico might not make necessary changes to ensure labor reforms or adequately fund enforcement mechanisms, 
He said that in an interview with the Washington Post and went on to say, if they can't enforce their own laws, we have a real problem. No agreement will be able to work. His comments echoed concerns from House Democrats, which must pass the deal secured by Republican President Donald Trump, a top Democratic lawmaker who led a delegation to Mexico this week, said Mexico has to do more to implement labor reforms. So here we go. But at least in a White House gathering at the beginning of this week, there was a formal signing of the U.S.-Japan trade agreement. And so let's hope we can quit talking about trade agreements and everybody gets along together. I think I'll end this on a lighter note. This is for you John Deere farmers out there. The John Deere enthusiasts should mark calendars for March 18 through 21 of 2020 and plan to attend the 11th gathering of the Green Conference in the Quad Cities. The conference will be at the River Center in downtown Davenport, Iowa, and it will transform into a county fair atmosphere with elaborate displays that focus on the 2020 theme, It's Fair Time. So, those of you who are making early plans, here is the website, www.gatheringofthegreen.com. Make your plans March 18 through 21 of next year. All in all, wasn't a bad day in the agricultural market community today. We'll end it with a quick look at where we ended the day. December wheat up 16.5 cents a bushel. December corn up 18 cents. November soybeans up 10 and 3 quarter cents. And in livestock trade at the Mercantile Exchange, December lean hogs up $1.37. The October live cattle up 77 cents a hundredweight. Well, that's the story for another eventful week in the world of trade. Thank you for joining us along with Max Armstrong. I'm Orion Samuelson on the markets.